Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. My name is Sultan Ghaznawi and I am your host. Today I have invited Soren Eberhardt from Microsoft to speak with me about the evolution of localization and we will talk about where and how localization started in the course of our history and where we are right now, but most importantly where we are headed. We are talking about some of the contemporary and modern practices as well as technologies in our industry. Soren Eberhardt is a global site manager for Microsoft 365 Web Direct Sales. He has been working in the field of internationalization and localization for 25 years, both on the vendor and client side, and in different roles from translator to localization engineer and program manager. Products that he has worked on include Windows, Skype, and Microsoft Teams. He has taught localization classes at the University of Washington and classes on computer-assisted translation tools at NYU and Montclair State University. And he has also helped release the first MOOC on localization at EDX. The language with the fewest speakers he has ever localized a product for is Inuktitut. Soren, welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Please tell me about yourself, Soren, and, and what do you do today? Um, so today I'm um, actually in marketing localization. So I'm working on all the international versions of our web pages that are selling Microsoft 365 um, to customers directly. And I'm um, on the small and medium business side of, of that. Um, so and I'm working on the international versions, I always have to say. It's not only the non-English ones, but there's also quite a few English ones for um, which I need to make sure that um, we show the prices in the right format and currency and um, the right legal disclaimers are in place and all that. And some of those English-speaking markets actually require quite a bit of marketization as well. So managing all of this information and, and all its different variants in other languages, it, it must be a challenge. It, it is a challenge. Um, I'm fortunately working um, with stakeholders who really know what they're what they're doing. Um, it's, it's good to have um, a lot of the things um, operationalized, so I don't really need to take care of tracking updates on the pages, for example, there's a really good process right. between our production team and um, the team on our vendor side who handle that uh, on the like translation side. Um, but yes, it is a lot of moving pieces. Soren, you have a very interesting story about how you found yourself in localization. Please share a few words with, with people who are listening. Um, so I've been in localization for um, now it's 25 years. Um, and <laughs> when I joined the localization... Years. When I joined the localization industry, I had no idea that it even existed. Um, <laughs> I I started actually because somebody contacted me, um, the, a small company in my hometown. They needed somebody proofreading translations um, and reading, basically editing for terminology consistency, um, a lot of those things that you want as um, extra quality step for translations, right? And um, I was asked because I had um, reviewed the master's thesis um, and 
um, other papers for tons of my friends. And uh, right. so people people around me knew that I was really good with the German language. So that's how I how I started. I was basically first proofreading. And at some point in time, I realized like I, I can translate myself. Um, I'm not only good at that German part, but I'm also good at that, at, at that English, understanding the English part. Uh, and then I started translating documentation. I eventually worked for a bigger vendor. Um, and then eventually that vendors uh, sent me over to Microsoft and eventually I ended up at Microsoft. And I had my interview on September 11th, 2001, which is a different story. That's um, interesting. <laughs> yes, yeah. I would love to hear that, but that's a different conversation altogether. Uh, what has your experience been teaching and being part of the academia? Uh, I particularly enjoyed your course on internationalization and localization, which is available on EDX. Um, so that, and that EDX course actually actually came out of my teaching at the University of Washington, which is not the only uh, place where I've been teaching, but where I've been teaching the longest. I've also uh, taught about CAT tools at NYU, and I'm actually right now I'm teaching at Montclair State University, a small college in New Jersey that contacted me um, and asked whether I'd be willing to do that. I feel that um, the way that academia has been talking about translation, I, I do see a shift there. Um, and that's why I really appreciate that that college uh, contacting me because they realize they they have a good translation uh, program, but they didn't really teach their students how to use the tools of the industry. Um, and that's something that we've at the University of Washington I'm actually teaching co-teaching one course out of a three course program. Um, we've always been focused on bringing the industry expertise in there and it's all instructors that are non-academic instructors. I think that it's super super important to really teach people the latest of what's what's going on in the industry right um, because things are changing so so dramatically and so quickly. Well, the state of the industry and, and technology in particular is very fluid. I mean, what works today does not is not even relevant tomorrow. So um, academia has to take a snapshot or a picture of what's available today. How do you do that? How do you get people to have developed skills that's portable that tomorrow they can apply to another set of technologies that are available? Well, I do think that there are certain um, certain concepts that um, stay relevant and that have stayed relevant in our industry. Um, the, the fact, for example, that translation always also requires um, an understanding of the of the culture. It's not just merely transferring words from one language to another, right? There's always right. a little more to, behind it. And that gets actually more relevant when you come from technical text, when you come to marketing text, for example, or more creative. Even in the technical world, things have, have gotten more, more creative, I would say. And um, having all that understanding of the cultural context. So I, I feel that there are certain concepts that will stay. But in terms of the in terms of the technology, yes, that that taking a snapshot and making sure that that snapshot doesn't become snapshot doesn't become obsolete. I think that's a that's an ongoing challenge. That's a very good uh, segue to to my next question, where we're talking about uh, the discussion of um, today's subject, which is the evolution of localization. And this is something you're quite familiar with. Can you tell me in general? Or if you, if we are going through a pivotal time in the localization industry right now in its history, I would think so. I think that actually a lot of a lot of industries are going through that. Um, just the way that computing has has developed, and we see a lot of um, artificial intelligence instilled in in processes all over the place. Right. Um, 
I do think that um, the localization industry is not even that old. I feel like we've constantly been changing, um, but there is definitely a, yeah, a new a new pivot going on going on right now, where um, a lot of the work is probably closer tied to computational linguistics, natural language processing, um, and taking advantage of of machine learning, for example. Um, uh, and that is something that really requires new thinking. Do you think as an industry right now, we have the right mindset for this shift to happen? Well, that is that is a tough one. I do hope so. Um, I think because people have gone through, uh, through changes before, I do think that there's definitely a willingness, but it's also it can also be challenging so for language service providers for example a stronger trend of clients to connect directly with translators in big marketplaces right that is when you cut out the middleman if if you are the middleman how do you think about that um right. And there, there are ways that uh, I have seen LSP, LSPs pivot by, for example, by providing those platforms themselves and by adding specific value that actually is very uh, unique to LSPs that hold trust in the language quality, right? If you have just um, generic platforms, freelance work platforms, um, there's a lot less trust in the translation quality there. So I, I do feel that... Um, as a whole, the industry should be should be ready, but I also always see these pockets of resistance. Um, it is change is change is hard, and especially after the last year that has accelerated a lot of change, a lot of the digital transformation. I think it's it's hard to basically constantly be right. um, be forced to to change. For the benefit of our uh, our listeners, let's take a, a step back. Uh, please tell me when and how did we wake up to localization and the demand for it in history? Like when did we realize that we need localization and uh, how did it look like at the beginning? So wh when you think about translation, which is um, in many localization projects still a very, very critical part. I, in the very beginning, I talked about localizing for, for English, um, but very often we would have translation as a, as a critical part of um, localization. Um, right. Translation has been around for a really long time, but it was basically texts for text's sake that were translated. So we had religious texts, there were legal texts, so Rosetta, Rosetta Stone, that famous tree, uh, trilingual text that actually helped um, decipher the hieroglyphs, um, there was a legal text. So, and then obviously scientific texts and um, literary fiction, have, those have been translated for, for millennia now. Right. Um, and actually that translation work um, has often set the foundation for for language, for linguistic studies, like especially like Bible translations. So translation has been around a really long time. Um, but on the other hand, international trade was not really something that was related to language. When people traded spices, I mean, the whole, the European explorers, they went out to get to the spices of India, right? There was no translation involved. But as the during the 20th century, products become became a lot more refined and you had technical products that require documentation. And probably a lot of us who are a little older still remember those those days when you had these VCRs with these really horrible manuals where the translation was just done <laughs> too quickly. Um, so technical manuals became more important because suddenly you had mass products that required translation work. Um, that right. is fairly that is fairly new. That is something that really just um, came up, I would say, um, as, a, as a big phenomenon in the mid 20th century and, and later. Um, 
And then the next big step was basically having digital products that that needed to get translated. And that went hand in hand with the development of the computer. When you only had a few really big machines, and I mean, there were those, I forgot who said that, that the world would never need more than 100 computers. Um, <laughs> at that time, it didn't really make sense, right? You could, it was easier to have a German administrator for one of these computers um, take a few English classes to understand the programming language and and everything that might have been there as documentation, then lo localize that, that manual. But as desktop computers became prevalent, so basically with a PC, with, a, with the Apple computers that were widely available to consumers, suddenly companies realized we need to give people part of that in their native language. And that's how, how it started that basically Microsoft, IBM, they were the first companies that actually went into localizing some of their user interface. And then eventually there was a lot of help content. And as you can, can imagine then internet, where you suddenly had all these digital assets, then there was a massive, massive push for having more and more things localized because it's fairly fairly easy to build a website. Um, it's easy to access it. Um, you also might want to make it available to speakers of other languages, right? If you want to reach a broader audience. Soren, uh, as we know that uh, today, technology and localization, they go hand in hand. Did technology evolve to address the changing needs of localization or did localization adapt to uh, available technology? What were the main drivers? So as I try to outline, obviously there was often technology that drove changes in the localization industry. Just thinking about like, okay, we suddenly have the all the content of the web, right? How do we address that? And tools were developed quickly to localize web pages. I would say that, um, but then the localization industry also came up with its own concept. Some of them were born in academia, um, just like a terminology database, uh, translation memories, there was more an academic thing, but then it got its application with all these, these massive, massive texts that had to be um, translated where you would often repeat things. Um, all those all those help manuals for um, for computers and their often their operating software. Um, suddenly translation memory made a lot of sense. And that's uh, when when Trados became really big um the late in the late 90s. So I, I would say there was there's basically been a constant dynamic between between the two. And I see also today that basically the localization industry is often looking at oh, what's what's happening in the overall IT world, where can we plug in? I mean, there are discussions, for example, about uh, blockchain technology. Would that be suitable for localization, right, where people are looking at the technology? On the other hand, there's some very localization-specific things that then drive technological change. Since this is a knowledge industry and, and people and their manual labor has been the foundation and backbone of localization, we all agree on that. Please tell me, Soren, when did that start to change? I would say, actually, um, the, the way that I would really define the localization industry as separate from a translation industry, I would say um, it happened with a with the beginning of looking at digital products. Um, so when the localization industry evolved, um, it's the engineers. They came in and um, they looked at how can we automate things. I think translators would have probably stayed just so much in love with with language that they wouldn't have thought too much about how can you streamline all these things um but we always have this ambivalence of the localization industry it's it's 
sitting somewhere between the humanities and engineering, right? There's always the language part of it and there's the engineering part of it. And it's a very, very fruitful tension. Um, you have now, you have localization engineers that might not even speak another language, but do think about these language-related processes. Um, so I, I think there has been a lot of that um, push from the, from the very beginning to think about, um, yeah, how can we make things faster, more efficient. Um, well, obviously, that's also driven by the business perspective. Automation and, and, and translation in particular has been an ongoing effort and, and debate for a long time, actually. In the 90s, uh, as you mentioned earlier, we saw translation memory with, with Trados becoming mainstream and popular. And in 2000s, uh, we got introduced to machine translation. Talk to me about this history a little bit, please. So yes, the the introduction of the translation memory that that whole idea of recycling basically came up. Um, I would say was driven by the mere scope of what had to be translated. People really had to think about how can we make sure that we can can handle that because suddenly there were more amounts of text that needed to be to be translated. And there's the idea of leveraging something that had been translated before was just very appealing. And at that time. Um, machine translation was just not uh, considered good enough. I think that part of what then drove um, the introduction of machine translation on a much bigger scale uh, is not only the increases of the quality of the MT output, but also the need for more speed. Uh, and that also has to do with changes in the broader IT industry, right? The the fact that for a web page, you don't have separate versions, right? When you, for, for apps, when you can constantly re-release them in app stores and you don't have people, people don't buy a, a DVD or CD right. even to install things. So the, the speed with which software services and web pages are being deployed, that speed also led to more need of introducing ways that, that could cope with that. And that's where, where machine translation then then came in and that whole idea of post-editing machine translation because it's still not very common that companies release emptied translations directly without any human human interaction there so that brings us to the subject of uh, deep learning which is a specialized field within machine learning and it presented new ways of transforming language in many ways including translation please tell me where we are in the timeline of history when it comes to artificial intelligence in this industry I would say that there's one area where that deep learning um, has played the biggest role for the for the uh, translation industry, and that is MT. Um, just right. the neural MT, the introduction of that, and it's only a few years back, right? Um, I, I would say probably like five years that uh, people really started um, seeing those breakthroughs in, in um, deep learning affecting machine translation and people moving away from statistical to neural neural machine translation. Um, so that's definitely the area where we've seen, I would say, the fastest impact because basically just that generation of translations obviously makes a huge impact on our industry. But I'm also seeing a lot of other um, machine learning models, especially when it comes to assessing user behavior, um, customer feedback, which was something that um, there weren't that many channels when I when I started in the in the industry, basically you would get anecdotal feedback from a subsidiary um, on translation quality, but there were no regular right. channels. And now there's so many ways that customers can can give feedback um, just by leaving feedback in a store for an app or um, 
special mechanisms within uh, on a, on a web page. You might have surveys, or you might just have a feedback field, and all those things. And that's where where I've also seen a lot of um, machine learning coming in, sentiment analysis, all all these things. But I would say that we're still at the beginning. There's a lot of talk about machine learning in our industry, which I think is is very fruitful. But um, at a recent conference, somebody said that um, yeah, basically a lot of what people call artificial intelligence is basically just some automation or some algorithms. <laughs> Yeah, rule-based still. Yes, exactly. Rule-based stuff and and hard-coded. Um, so I think we still have ways to go to apply um, apply the new models and and new processes that are based on on machine learning. Let, let's talk a little bit in terms of what uh, machine learning is. I mean, at the beginning, it was sequence-to-sequence mapping of languages. But I think now we are at a point where um, machines are learning based on on uh, on patterns. What does that mean for our industry? What do people need to know in order to intelligently decide how to shape their their organizations, their people, their training, and so forth? Well, I would say that one of the one of the areas where people have to rethink there were before um, is just how you consume data. I think that in the localization industry. People hadn't really thought that much about right. about data, even even the data that we owned, right? Our translations. They we were, were sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> yes, exactly. But they were used for training MT models. That that was it, right? But um, I mean, even doing a quality assessment and some sort of automatic quality assessment, right? There's readability algorithms. Um, I think there's still still a lot that people can do, and just having that perspective uh, that there's a lot of data that we can that we can use in our industry. Um, I think there's there's still a lot of learning to do. And I agree with you because we are capturing data in the form of translation memories and so forth. But there's a lot of data that we don't capture. For example, we do a lot of virtual interpreting, and due to different privacy laws and limitations, we can't capture them. But imagine if we did. They all mean something to someone, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And uh, as we stand, Soren, uh, human in the loop, the fancy name for linguist training machine uh, machines, basically, and correcting their output, it, that's an important aspect of how translation is performed today. Please share a few words about how long will this model exist as you look into the future. At this point, we really don't have artificial intelligence. We have more of, uh, as you said earlier, augmented intelligence where a human actually supervises the output of um, machines. Do you think we will truly achieve autonomous uh, translation capability with AI anytime soon? I wouldn't say soon, and it really depends on the text type. I think that, um, I mean, there's often, we often get these reports for near-human parity for translations, but what does that mean and for for what sort of text is it? And also, is it on the sentence level or is it on the overall um, text asset level? I would say that these models are getting better and better. I could see certain text forms where um, the human might not be uh, needed for too long. And when I'm saying too long, I'm I'm thinking of timeframes from five to 10 years. But we also should keep in mind that language constantly changes. And that is where the human might be might be mostly needed. And it's interesting. Right. I feel like that's one of the areas where discussions just got started about, um, for example, bias in machine translation. When you have one of the publicly available MT um, platforms translate, the doctor told the nurse the patient might die. If you translate to, to a gendered language, the doctor will be male, the nurse will be female, the patient will be male. Why, why is right. that? It has to do with the input, right? And that was human input. But 
um, you don't really want to end up with something that has been biased by former biases. And as language has been changing, as there's more gender awareness, um, there's been a lot more awareness of, of biases in society that need to be countered. And they need to be consciously countered. That's an area where I feel that the human in the loop will right now, especially these years, will be really, really important to catch these things. And that is something that the machine cannot cannot catch because it's being fed with data that are inherently biased. And so, um, and when I was talking about the broader cultural context that the translator brings, right, um, how much of that is needed for a text form? Uh, and that broader cultural context that is also countering, countering the biases that might have ex existed in the culture, but you don't want to perpetuate into the future. So I see different areas where the human in the loop will still be very, very important for that translation part. To add to that, Soren, do you think that humans will be needed to add value using their common sense and intuition and in and, and translation or any type of NLP output? Is that where humans can add value? Because right now, the way it stands, NLP applications in particular, like machine learning, they have very narrow scope of output. Uh, they are good, for example, uh, translating content with a very limited uh, area of, of legal text, for example, if it's trained properly. Do you think that humans will continuously add value using intuition and common sense? Yes, I would I would say so. I and um I think that's something that people often don't understand when they when they talk about machine translation that obviously the machine doesn't understand what it's translating. Very different from the right, from the human, right? Um, and when I'm when I'm teaching translators, for example, I would often tell them also look at the quality at source. Is the even the source text adequate for what you're translating into? Right? The machine will translate whatever, <laughs> and um, that's where human um, the human common sense is important. And that is common sense. Um, that is an area where artificial intelligence is. Research is, is at the very beginning um, where there are models um, that are being trained where people try to instill uh, a sort of common sense. Um, some of the things that are easiest for humans seem to be hardest for, for machines. Um, so um, everything that really has to do with knowledge of the world um, will be extremely hard to um, be replicated by a machine. Um, I feel... As soon as there's machine translation that can translate a joke really well into another language and culture, then probably for all of us humans, then probably all the other jobs have been taken as well. Because then <laughs> the, the computer can do anything, then I think we can go all go on vacation. And from what I hear these days, uh, things such as transformers and, and knowledge graphs are trying to solve that problem. But as you said, we are still in its infancy and quite a ways off. Yes, definitely. It's and it's a, it's a really vast field. I mean, it's just um, human knowledge is is broad, and especially um, something like cultures, right? I mean, we a lot of people in the translation industry since they they've crossed national borders to work someplace else, or they've been working internationally for so long. I mean, we know um, as human beings that there's a way that you can connect with human beings on a really deep level, but then there are all these cultural differences that can be very, very hard to navigate. And it's very hard to actually have really a rule, any anything rule-based there, but also um, kind of how, how do you get the data for that, right? Um, right, right. For that, for those different behaviors, um, and and all that, um, there's this iceberg model um, for cultures, which I which I really like. That um, you only see the tip of the iceberg. You see the buildings, the cuisine, maybe some of the manners, but then there's all this broad 
all this broad stuff underneath the the values, and there are vast differences between between cultures that eventually might surface in language, um, and that is really hard to capture. It's a lot easier to have a human there. As you just said, the populations or communities are living organisms, and they're constantly changing. So a machine captures things uh, that's uh, static at a specific time. You know, it it doesn't capture everything as it's evolving. Yes. Yeah. And it needs to. Yeah. It needs to stay dynamic to to keep capturing the the newest trends. Indeed. So. Soren, AI presents many opportunities beyond translation for uh, of content for our industry. Uh, we've been thinking only in the, in the realm of machine translation. I can think of generating content across other languages using, as I mentioned earlier, transformers and knowledge graphs. Do you think that there are additional applications that we can monetize and our industry should pay attention to? Yes, definitely. Um, so the first thing is... Um, you said content, um, so I really appreciate that because often people would say text, right? Um, right. Kind of artificial intelligence is focused on text. I think um, there's a lot that can be done with other assets, visual, video, audio. Um, how can we use AI in that area? And those are like the richer a medium gets, the the harder it might might be. Um, but thinking about some artificial intelligence for for video localization, um, I feel that's a that's a great challenge. Is there a way that you could um, have MT and then text to speech, and you have something really naturally sounding, a voiceover for a video that then gets synchronized with a new localized video content? Right. There's I think there's there's tons of potential in that area. But but then um, earlier, I also talked about uh, how the industry is paying a lot more um, attention to the to users, and we have a lot more ways of getting user feedback. So I see areas there, um, just categorizing feedback, looking at usage across markets, and obviously for um, company like Microsoft, that is that is super interest, interesting, right? To see right. Um, when we have the same product that might be slightly marketized, but um, often like the core is very, very similar. Um, how are people using that across markets? Um, I worked on the very first release of Microsoft Teams, and we looked at sticker usage. So, um, across markets. And it was very, very interesting to see how certain stickers would appeal much more to certain markets than to, to other markets. And getting those inside, building models there, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of potential for the localization industry as well, helping clients to understand that the differences in user behavior across markets, giving people the analytical tools to understand what's going on in a specific market. So from what I'm hearing is that the localization industry at some point will transform into a data delivery type of an industry where we will not just be dealing with text or language, we might be dealing with data. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. Would you say that as an industry, we are ready for the technology evolution that is around the corner? The legacy ways of offering services may still be around for a long time, but in order to jump on the technology bandwagon, do you feel we have the right skills and education available to our human resources? Ooh, that is a that is a tough one. I would say that um, in certain ways, the localization industry, a lot of LSPs are very well set up for um, handling some of the data work because um, the common freelancing model, how resources are being brought in for projects, um, how people are being trained, how people are being paid, all those things. I think that can can be very beneficial for a lot of the data, re- for data-related tasks. On the other hand, 
uh, there's probably a lot of people that still yeah think about the industry as a as a knowledge based industry as you said and I don't I don't think that uh, the need for expertise will go away, um, right. but you also need to look at ways to augment that um, with the outcome of that data work. So with with machine learning output, and so um, I do think there's a lot of a lot of learning required, um, and yeah, it really it really depends on the individual um, LSP where they are on that on that journey. As an industry, do our um, translator education or linguist education needs to change to adapt to this this new reality? I would think so. I would think that translators should definitely not only work with a TM, for example, they should from the get-go understand how to post-edit machine translation and also understand where is the value beyond mere translation that they're delivering. And often they might intuitively understand that, um, but I don't think we have a good um, angle on that yet, um, how to train people, people in that area. Since the primary audience of, of this podcast uh, is language translation and interpreting company executives. What will you tell them right now, Soren, to prioritize on their to-do lists? Should they start learning about technological changes? How should they be ready to do business with enterprises and governments in the next two to five years? I would say, yeah, look look at what's going on broadly in the in the language industry and definitely be prepared for, for changes. Uh, I would say that a lot of the clients and, and governments are probably looking at ways to become even faster, even extending their scope um, and becoming even cheaper um, with their deliverables. So I know that there's still still a lot of people who are not even working with like post-editing machine translation, right? I, I would say right. uh, there are some, some technologies that people might still even need to catch up on, but then looking at, yes, um, what might be the data needs of those of those clients? What have they possibly not even tapped into? Um, Ultimately, governments and and clients, they're working for somebody else with their digital products, right? And that somebody else can provide you with data. And I know there's a tension between privacy and and data gathering, but you still need to understand, like if you're doing a government website, who's visiting that and for what purpose? Or you have a client and they have a software product. What do those end users, what are those doing with that product? And going beyond language knowledge to market knowledge, I think that's a really, really important step uh, for a lot of LSPs. Let's discuss what goes on in enterprises these days. Uh, you work in Microsoft uh, and, and you see how localization is changing there. What kind of a shift do you see in terms of evolution of localization within the enterprise space? So, yeah, the understanding understanding customers, I think that is definitely one of the one of the pivots that we've made. Um, we've built quite a bit of muscle, uh, and we are constantly trying to build machine learning as well, um, because you sometimes get such a huge amount of data. Well, speaking of of data, I would also say that um, and that's probably been over the last decade that th- that's where the where localization has changed the most um, for for me at at Microsoft. Um, Suddenly we were hiring data scientists, uh, (laughs) something we didn't have in in localization, right? People would really look at at data models and yeah, so um, there's a lot of that going on on at Microsoft um, that we've been basically moving away from a focus on operations because I feel that localization operations have been figured out fairly well by a lot of companies. So we've 
try to move away from investing in the infrastructure. Um, and obviously, you need to keep those pipelines working, uh, right. but focusing a lot more on product value and um, yeah, how does the customer perceive that and really looking at where can the localization teams, the international teams also influence uh, the general development. So we're kind of getting more... Uh, downstream, really connecting with customers, but also a lot more upstream um, and influencing our product development teams and uh, making sure that everything is really developed with a worldwide audience and not with an EN-US audience only in mind. That, that's a very good point that you brought up, uh, Soren, because user experience is basically it defines the success or failure of a product or, or a company for that matter. What is the localization industry not getting right about user experience? Well, I think for a long time, we focused on just making sure that uh, the localization process itself doesn't degrade the user experience. I mean, I I basically grew up in the industry with a solid fear of truncations and making sure course, that yes. long long German words would fit into a dialogue. Um, right. There was very there was a big focus, but how proactive can localization teams be in actually shaping part of the user experience. So I think there's still more that kind of damage control mindset, and that might also play uh, apply to to visual assets. And I see that more in marketing, that you want to make sure that it appeals across across markets. But getting more to being proactive, and I'm, I'm in a lucky position where I do run um, A-B tests on our pages where we don't only change copy, but we might even change a whole flow. So we, we're getting to that point where we are actually trying to actively shape user experience even on a market market level and i think that's where um, companies in general should go to really looking at the suitability of specific user experiences uh, across the world soren where will the future spend for will be allocated for localization do you think enterprises will continue more uh, spend on on traditional localization or you think that more of the marketing dollars more of the localization dollars will be focused towards uh, new and innovative technologies i would think that basically um big enterprises probably want less spending on the traditional project management work and, as I said, like that handling of the operations. A lot of that be, should become very transparent. And so the investments would be actually more on some of the innovative technologies and, and maybe increasing agility where it hasn't been increased enough. But that, that traditional translation pipeline is not something that I see um, us making investments in. Soren, uh, obviously we've covered quite a bit of uh, ground here today, but to keep up the momentum, let me ask you about the drivers for localization going forward. Do you think new formats, channels, media, and content will create new opportunities in localization? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think there's, um, it's it's interesting how many, um, I, I mean, there's new technologies, um, but there's also technologies that, um, change content consumption. So Netflix is one of my favorite examples. The the way that international content is consumed in the United States, for example, suddenly there's a lot more need for, for subtitling because now Americans are watching foreign language shows a lot more than, than they ever have um, because there's really, really great content. And I think probably nearly everybody um, in the audience who is located in the US, if, if they're using Netflix, they might have a favorite 
non-English English show that they've been watching. And so content, content has changed and there's probably new content forms that are, that are coming up. I wonder what VR and AR will do when those technologies become a little more prevalent, how much uh, that might change localization and even like cultural considerations, right? If you have um, right. VR and AR and you can use hand gestures, would those differ? We may need to make sure that we use specific hand gestures in specific markets. Voice is obviously a factor and voice is not new, but it's still like there's still a lot to do um, for voice assistance, bots as well. Um, all all form of, of bots um, require good good models and cultural adaptation possibly as well. Um, I think not that much has been has been done there in how flows might be very different. I think there's been more like bot bot translation and just making sure that the output output is translated. But might somebody um, approach like a support bot um, very differently across markets? I would actually think right. so. Um, I don't think there's there's enough insights yet. And that's, again, whether you need to have those data from your customers, right? Um, you cannot feed the machines if you don't even have data around that. Education as well. I think there's, uh, I mean, especially over the last year, so many things have shifted to the digital world. And there's been that acceleration for the educational sector sector as well. How much um, translation needs will we see there? You mentioned um, edX. Um, we have done a course, edX Coursera, uh, but a lot of even even colleges would they want to offer uh, a course online with uh, with translated content in there? So there's tons of different formats. There's different channels, different content that will even. Exp- will expand the need for for localization even more. And that's a good point because technology is bringing the world together and in particular internet has erased communication boundaries. Some of the most populous regions of the world are about to go online. They're not fully online yet. So technologies such as Starlink, for example, will get people from remote regions to access the internet. What type of opportunities do they present for the localization industry? So yeah, as you mentioned, some some regions will see increased increased use, and um, actually some of them are leapfrogging. Right, you might not even need to localize web pages for the desktop. You might want to go to mobile straight away um, for some right. some some of those new markets. Uh, it will definitely expand the language portfolio. I would say that um, people have thought about India for quite some time. Um, I do see an expansion of the languages there, the regional languages, but people haven't really looked that much at at Africa yet. Um, I think there will be quite a bit going on there. And I would also say that there will probably be opportunities for language variants. Um, people are often not looking at that that part. So um, Africa, there will be more French speakers in, in Africa at some point than, than the rest of the world. People using maybe variants of French that might need to be modified in the in the localization process. So uh, yeah, new languages, I think, would be definitely, definitely part of that um, expansion of the of the user base for many technologies. Let's talk about some of the challenges, uh, the threats. Uh, what are some of those threats that we should watch out for? Uh, there are natural threats like the pandemic that we had to face with last year, uh, which changed the dynamics of almost every industry. But what else would affect this industry and in, in what ways? The Biggest threats that I can actually see are all forms of geopolitical tensions and kind of the, everything that has to do with kind of the trends against globalization. Right. 
And we have some of those things in place already. Um, uh, there's this this interesting term, splinternet. Um, there's definitely the the divide between the U.S. and and China and um, China basically having its own version of the internet, right? When you look at the the great firewall, no Google, YouTube, Facebook, Wikipedia, Netflix. I mean, it's just there's so many so many companies that don't have a foothold in in China, and they have their own technology um, companies. They are trying to expand into other markets. So we will see competition, which might be um, very fruitful. And there might be markets like like India, where you see a strong mix between US-based and China-based offerings. But um, as national or, or regional regulations become different, like Europe with its GDPR, oh, a lot of American companies just replicated that worldwide. But if, if Europe becomes more... Uh, stronger in regulating things. Maybe we see a splinter in the head of of like three different different blocks. And um, I mean, the localization industry has always been able to navigate things. I mean, that's one of the value adds, right? How do you get right. a product into a into a market? Uh, but if the hurdles become too high, then uh, that might really impact the industry negatively. So let's hope that things don't splinter up too much, that we still keep um, things open. Uh, but that would be that would be one of the concerns that I would have. Uh, Soren, what's your message to LSPs and stakeholders in the localization industry today? Learn from others. Uh, there's so much going on. I feel like we we covered a lot of different topics. Right? We covered a lot of things that um, are changing, have changed. Um, so there are great industry conferences, but there's also, well, you providing a way to um, learn from others. So I think it's uh, all these efforts are super, super valuable. And there's so many different ways that people can connect in our industry. Um, lock lunches, some meetups, regional meetups that I hope get restarted as the pandemic sees. So, um, yeah, I, I feel that is the most important thing, really trying to to look a little beyond your your company uh, and see what you can what you can take away, uh, how other approaching others are approaching problems. Well, uh, sadly, Soren, we have reached the end of this interview. Uh, this conversation has continued, but uh, please share how people can learn from you about your experiences and and your thoughts. So um, I'm always happy when people are connecting with me. So um, I'm open to uh, connections on on LinkedIn, and I'm actually I'm I'm posting regularly uh, about interesting things that I find about languages, particular markets of the industry at large. And then, um, yeah, there's this edX course on internationalization and localization of um, people are just at the very beginning. Uh, are they just exploring the industry? Uh, I think that's a good starting point. Um, and then I'm also having that University of Washington localiz part of the localization program. I'm doing the introduction course there. So if people want to learn from me personally, that's a way they can they can do that. But there's tons of people that you can learn from. That was an incredible hour spent with you, Soren. I have certainly enjoyed speaking with you and learning from you in this one hour. I'm sure people listening to us have also found value. And even if we were able to answer one question that they had in their minds, I, I think we've met our goal. So I hope we can do this in the future again. And with that, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Sultan. It was a great opportunity to talk about some of my thoughts. So I really appreciate it. Okay, it's time for my roundup of the interview and my analysis as to what has been discussed. 
Sovereign presents a very pragmatic and open perspective of our industry as it stands. It is undisputed that our industry is going through a radical shift in terms of how localization and particular language translation is achieved. Artificial intelligence has been a buzzword for a long time now, but few of us paid the right kind of attention to what has been going on in that front. Today, machine learning, in particular deep learning, has enabled us to get almost human-like translation quality, and as you heard, there are severe limitations on how machine translation can be utilized. The main limitation is the narrow focus of its output, meaning output of machine translation is good for one very specific subject matter. We are quite a ways off from general purpose machine translation where things make sense just like we as people understand each other. That presents opportunities for our workforce to retool and recalibrate their skill sets. Our educators and the industry need to understand that they need to train our workforce for a new reality where we will not require many of the things we have traditionally been using in our industry. That being said, I'm very excited to be part of this movement that will cause this radical shift in our industry. Remember, change is the only constant in our universe and resistance is futile. That is all for today. I enjoyed this episode immensely. I would love to have Soren on this show again to talk about new and innovative technologies and about this industry we all love so much. If you haven't done already, please subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Don't forget to send your comments and feedback. They are very important. Give us a thumbs up or five stars wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.